0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz's weekly podcast. I'm Esther Solomon in Tel Aviv. There's probably never been such a visually documented war as this Israel-Hamas war. And it started at the very beginning on October the 7th, when Hamas terrorists with their GoPros, Telegram accounts, live streams and embedded journalists broadcast live from the pathways of the Kibbutzim in southern Israel during their invasion and massacres. The hurried snaps of people fleeing the Nova music party massacre, Israeli hostages kidnapped on motorbikes, the army bringing out body bags from kibbutz houses. Today, we have thousands and thousands of images of the suffering in Gaza, neighborhoods, schools, mosques, pulverized buildings, rubble-covered children's bodies recovered from the destruction, long lines of internal refugees carrying just a bag each. We also have the images of the IDF in Gaza and we have the videos of captive hostages published by Hamas. Pictures have great power, and that means those in power have a great interest in directing images towards their political narrative. My guest this week is perfectly placed to give a unique insight into the issue of pictures and power. She is an editor, reporter and photographer. She is also a long-standing peace activist and human rights advocate. Anat Saragusti is an extraordinarily multi-talented and influential figure in Israeli life. In 1982, she conducted the first Israeli interview with Yasser Arafat in besieged Beirut. She is recognized as Israel's first woman war photographer. She has been active in integrating journalists from underrepresented communities into the mainstream media, including women, Ethiopian Israelis, and Palestinian citizens of Israel. We are going to be talking together about October the 7th and after, but this time about the visual language of the war and the power that pictures have, about who and what influences the visual narrative of the war, about the most shocking, resonant images of the war, and how shocking images have a long history in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She was the first Israeli woman TV reporter covering Gaza and lived there from time to time, and a decade later moved to Sterot, an Israeli town under constant rocket attack from Gaza, and lived and reported from there. And she is currently curating an exhibition at the Eretz Israel Museum in Tel Aviv called Local Testimony, a collection of the iconic photographs from the past year in Israel. My conversation with Anat Coming up. Hi, Anat. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for the warm introduction. (laughs) Well, it's, it's entirely justified. Let's start a bit with the basics. From your experience on both sides of the camera lens, what makes a news photo stand out? What are the ingredients that go into a truly striking or noteworthy image?
1: Wow. Well, first, I think it's it lies on the ability of the photo to convey uh, an emotion, to make you feel something. Then to tell the story as, uh, you know, the cliche says photo weighs 1,000 words. And then uh, its ability to tell a story and to be universal even years after the event that it reflects So these are the main three ingredients, I think,
0: that makes a photo a good photo. And what what kind of differences are there about photos during wartime? Is there some kind of different kind of way of judging what makes them stand out?
1: First of all, most of the photos of wartime are photos of destruction and rebels. You can hardly see, you know, the, re- the, the, the actual war, the shooting, unless it's a, it's a GoPro like Hamas had and like um, IDF soldiers have when they, when they go around Gaza. So, so um, war photographers, photojournalists don't usually, you know, go around uh, rockets and missiles to take photos. What they see is the result of the war mainly, you know, the human result and the, and the rubble and destruction of, of buildings. Unless, you know, in very, very rare moments, uh, like uh, Robert Capa had in, during the civil war in Spain in 1936, I think, uh, when a soldier was hit by a bullet and he had the fraction of the moment when the soldier is falling down. Uh, this is very, very extraordinary and very rare. And and the fact that we remember it and it's such an iconic photo um, proves that it's so so unusual to take such a photo. So n- during this war in Gaza, uh, like you said, rightly so, you know we have a lot of of images of the destruction, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which, by the way, the Israeli audience hardly see. And then we have all the the destruction that that the IDF spokesperson wants us to see, to to construct our our minds, in a way.
0: Now, one of the photos you took from your time as a news photographer is a key image in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Just to give some background, in 1984, four Palestinians hijacked an Israeli bus. Eventually, commandos stormed the bus. Two of the hijackers were killed and two were c- taken into custody by the Shinbet, And what actually happened to them is that they were executed, but the Bet denied that any hijackers had been taken alive after the bus. But you and another uh, photographer, Alex Levach, took photos at the scene showing that those two hijackers definitely were alive when they'd been led away. Out of the storm of that controversy... What did you learn about the power of an individual image, and perhaps more generally, what impact have key images like that had on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
1: Well, here the photo it, as as in on itself was not a very you know powerful photo. The story behind the photo and the way we managed to get the photo, this was a story because they wanted to hide all these these. Um, events when they executed the hijackers of, of the bus. So um, it was like an investigative journalism uh, by us who didn't want to, you know, align with the Shin Bet and hiding the story and cover it up. And we wanted to, to expose the fact that they were executed because we thought it's... it's I mean, it's it's important for the audience and the Israeli society to know what Shin Bet was doing to those people, and because it's immoral, illegal, and you know, this is not done in in all kinds of layers. Um, so our insistence of publishing the story, you know, and uh, this was the story itself of of uh, I think if I may say, you know, unmodesty, brave journalism, because we had to fight the system. We had to fight the censorship who didn't want us to to publish the photo. And we had to fight the army and we had to fight something that is called, you know, national patriotism, where people think that if you portray um, the state agencies in a negative way, you're anti-patriotic. And... In my view, when you're a journalist, um, so I, your identification is as a journalist. And as a journalist, you must tell the story and you must speak a truth to the power and you must reveal whatever you know. And your loyalty is first to the audience and the the, the right of the of the public to know, and not to the state agencies and and the state.
0: Now, um, just. Moving to this uh, extraordinary exhibition that you're curating called Local Testimony, when I saw uh, some of the images that you'd selected, it was quite a strange feeling. I mean, it's supposed to be a review of 2023. There are powerful images of refugees from the war in Ukraine and from Israel's pro-democracy protest movement. And then there's this sudden shift on October the 7th You know, both here in Israel and around the world, we've witnessed so many images from the day of that attack onwards. Can you describe what it was like sifting through images from all of 2023 and how you dealt with the tremendous change of October the 7th and since?
1: So at the beginning, before October 7th, we had two major issues at the exhibition. One was the protest against um, the the um, judicial overhaul, um, and the second was what's going on in the in the occupied territories, the West Bank. You know the clashes between uh, settlers and Palestinians, and Palestinians in the army, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just remember Hawara, you know, this um, small Palestinian village in the West Bank, where settlers, as a revenge for killing two of their settlers, uh, went and, and burned down, you know, to ashes, tens of cars and homes of, of Palestinians. So these were the main issues of, of 2023 when we started the creation. And speaking about photos, you know, the, uh, the protests that went on for almost nine months, week after week, It was really very civilized. If you went to the streets in in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or everywhere else in the country, um, the majority of the protest was very, very calm. It was really polite. But when the images came in, you know, we selected the more dramatic images to to convey the message of of the protest. And this is something, you know, sometimes, you know, twists the, 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 the reality on the ground. Anyway, so then October 7th came, and we had to stop and say, just a minute, it's not really part of the timeline of, of the initial ex- exhibition, uh, but we have to give it the space. We have to discuss it. We have to put it in. We, I mean, this is something major we understood that this is something major that has to be part of the of the exhibition so there is a space in the in the hall of the exhibition dedicated to to the war that started on october 7th and we decided to uh, put like a slideshow of almost 300 images of october 7th that reflect you know, the the disaster and the massacre, mainly in the Kibbutzim and in, in the Novab Nature Party and in Sderot, the city of Sderot. Uh, and this series of 300 images starts with a short video that Rui Dan, um, a news photographer for Ynet, and the, the other whole note, uh, took. On this morning at six twenty-eight or something like that, he was um, a member of kibbutz Kfar Aza, and he heard the noises in the morning. And he went out, and he took a short video uh, showing the uh, the Hamas militants coming on on uh, drones into his kibbutz. And he managed, and on the background you hear "Seva Adom, Seva Adom." You know the alarm that went off, and and he managed to to send it to 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 the newsroom. And he went back home and he was murdered and his wife Smadal was murdered. And his two um, uh, children were hiding in the the closet and were saved and survived. And his little daughter, um, um, Abigail, Abigail, four years old, was kidnapped to Gaza and she was released only a few days ago. So this, is the image that opens, you know, the series of, of the images from October 7th. And this is really chilling, you know, when you see it and you see the beginning, and this is 6.28 a.m., you know, when it all began, when all the kibbutzim were were attacked. And um, so th- this is the part of the war. And we also had, uh, you know, I work at the Union journalist Journalists in, in Israel as a, a press freedom uh,
0: Coordinator
1: and we decided to to have a, a prize on his name, on the name of Rui who was a member of, of the Union of Journalists. And so it, yeah. And when you go into the hall of the exhibition and you see, uh, you know, this three main issues, you know, the, the West Bank, the war, and the and the um, protest on the on democracy, it all linked. To one another I mean it's it's all part of the same story and and then you're you know amazed from what we've been through in the last year I mean this is crazy
0: yeah I mean that that definitely uh taking those three huge uh issues is enough for several years news and uh and images uh, and it all got packed into one year when when you were sitting there selecting those Photos for that slideshow, which basically would act as a kind of summary, a visual summary of October the seventh. What were the kinds of criteria that you were thinking about? Because on the one hand, you have to kind of weigh up what level of atrocity do you show, weighed up with respect for the people whose perhaps you know bodies and and uh, homes that you're actually showing in those images. On the other hand, you need a certain level of explicitness in order to show that something that terrible actually happened and it's not just, you know, just uh, remainders or what survived of small objects. You have to show the, the entirety of what happened. How difficult was it to kind of find that balance that actually expressed what actually happened?
1: Very difficult. Very, very difficult. First of all, because
0: we are in
1: Israel, we we used to to crises and and um, disasters like that. I mean, killings of and bodies and and uh, terrorist attacks and whatever. So the idea was, how do you show the magnitude of the event, the scale of the killings and the massacre, and you know, um, because. When you see a, a funeral after a funeral after a funeral, I mean, they all look more or less the same. I mean, it's a different life that were taken and different families, etc. But as an image, how do you convey and how do you capture, you know, really the magnitude of the event? And and so and in terms of the bodies, it was really a dilemma because uh, the photographers sent all kinds of photos of, of bodies. And we didn't hide want to, to hide the fact that there were you know, many, many bodies collected in the, in the kibbutzim, in the houses of the kibbutzim and in the Nova Party. So we decided not to show you know very graphic photos, but to show um uh you know lines of, of bodies covered of course um and to show these these, um, uh, tracks that usually, you know, uh, take um, ice cream, and now they had to take the bodies uh, to the autopsy. Uh, We also showed, you know, all these graveyards where they dug like 10 graves in a row, and you understand that. This is something big and it's a funeral after funeral after funeral and you can see it. And so, and and there are some icons in uh, on the way like the police station in Sderot where there was a really, really very tough um, uh, battle there. And the second dilemma was uh, uh, regarding the homes of, of um, uh, the Kibbutzim, in the Kibbutzim. And we didn't Take any photos from inside the, those homes, unless the ho- the house was completely ruined, you know, like a rubble and and um, destroyed or burned down to ashes. Uh, we didn't want anyone to see his or her house uh, in a photo where he's not around and cannot allow or not allow the photographer to get in. We thought this is um, too much of an in- invasion into the privacy of the people. Um, There are photos of, you know, the soldiers taking bodies out of these homes and you cannot avoid thinking that the army didn't protect these people and now the soldiers have to, you know, do this horrible task of collecting the bodies of of the the people in the kibbutzim. so and it was really really hard watching all these Im- images. But I think we managed to kind of uh, balance between the deep and and horrible event uh, and the the ability of the people to
0: to see those images. You mentioned before that there really is this huge gap between let's call it the visual diet, the imagery that Israelis are getting, and what the Arab world and the rest of the world see on their TV screens and on their social media feeds. On mainstream media in Israel, you know, there's clearly and and quite understandably and rightly much uh, concentration on the stories of people from October the 7th still, the hostages very much at the forefront of the public consciousness and of the soldiers that are dying in, uh, in Gaza but they're barely exposed to what's happening in Gaza to civilians at all. What do you think this effect has that there is such a difference in the balance between the images that people are exposed to? I think um,
1: that the fact that the Israeli audience don't see images from Gaza um, is some, you know, it's... it's the, the journalists are not doing their jobs. They, they have to to show these images because what we see in Israel, you know, Hebrew-speaking uh, Israelis, when we watch our television and the main main mainstream media, except Haaretz, I must say, we're not exposed at all to what's going on in Gaza. I mean, we do and in very in a margin of things. We don't see the images. We don't see the atrocities. We don't see the rubbers. We don't see the destruction. We don't see the humanitarian crisis. I mean, humanitarian crisis is like, it's like a, a headline with no content. And, and we have to show that because the world sees something completely different from what we see. The world did see and did concentrate on October 7th massacre. And they were here, like tens of, of journalists from all over the world came to Israel to, to cover this. And the bodies and, and the remains of the Nova Party and the, the dis- destruction in the Kibbutzim and everything. They saw everything. They they d- delivered this message and they reported on it. They told their their audience that now the the, the focus is somewhere else. And the fact that the world sees that and and exposed to that, and even the all the Arab-speaking uh, uh, people in Israel and, and, of course, the Arabs around us see a completely different um, a picture of reality than we see. And we, if we don't see that, and if we don't understand what the world is seeing, we will not be able to understand the sentiment, the growing sentiment against us Around the world, because the world is not undermining my, what we have been through. They understand. They know it's been a massacre, and the majority of the people. Um, I'm not talking about you know radical activists. The majority of the people in the in the West world or de- in democratic countries understand that Israel has been through a, really something devastating. But now the story goes somewhere else and the fact that we don't see it and we don't understand what's going on and we live in a different, completely different dimension doesn't really um, work for our own interest um, because we have to deal with it. We have to deal with what the IDF is doing in Gaza. But we only see what the IDF wants us to see from Gaza. You know, the the, the areas that the the Israeli uh, military forces are are controlling in northern Gaza, there is no independent journalism there. Nobody can enter there unless under, you know, like you said, embedded into units, uh, military units and then you're completely controlled and then you have to go through uh, military censorship before you can publish whatever you collected so we have to know that and it's important and and uh, and I think we're missing we're missing it i know that the israeli audience is is overwhelmed with the sorrow and and sense of devastation and despair and worry for of course for, for the uh, Hostages who are still kept in Gaza, 137 people, and of, of course, from the, the people who had to evacuate their homes, in, both in the north and in the south. I know all that, but still, this is part of the reality that we have to be to acknowledge. We have to be aware of. We have to understand it.
0: Right. I mean, obviously, there's also uh, a difficulty in uh, how we understand. The coverage that comes from journalists who are actually in Gaza, because there isn't free reporting under Hamas rule either. Same thing. We don't have foreign media at all in Gaza
1: at all. So we don't. We cannot verify what they they tell us from the southern part of Gaza. We don't know. We don't know whether it's fake or truth or whatever. I do want to believe that, you know, photos that are taken by New York Times, Reuters, AP and other uh, Western uh, news agencies are verified. Uh, but what we see on social media, I don't know. I really don't know. And this is this is not good.
0: Right. Now, we talked uh, just briefly before about how pictures are have an enormous amount of power and the moment that there's power then obviously they become political as well and become potential tools uh, for politicians. Who do you think really has more of the power to control the visual narrative of this war? For instance, images have been used by both sides as part of um, non- military kind of warfare or psychological warfare, if you want to call it. For instance, Hamas has used videos of the hostages, Israeli hostages that it's holding, and some of them are tremendously graphic and very cruel, and they're obviously meant to exert enormous pressure on uh, Israeli public opinion. And you have also on the uh, Israeli side a huge uh, uproar uh, recently about the images of Palestinians who have been detained in Gaza, stripped and handcuffed, which Israeli uh, sources may well have thought that that was going to be a powerful tool to change Palestinian or Arab uh, public opinion as well. Do you think that these attempts to use images as part of a psychological war actually do have an effect or people see beyond them?
1: I'm not sure it has an effect unless if you focus on revenge uh, and you want to create, you know, a sense of revenge or emotion of revenge and this may satisfy you. When you see how our army humiliates these Palestinians who are completely stripped of, of all their clothes and then they walked barefoot uh, towards these soldiers. I don't see that it can change anybody's mind uh, on the Palestinian side. And on the other hand, you know what Hamas did when they went, you know, with the GoPro cameras and uh, documented whatever they did and live streamed it uh, on October 7th. I don't want to believe that it creates a a sense of of proud among uh, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. It it didn't change any of of our people's minds. And uh, and I think many times when you want to convey a message through through an image uh, purposely as propaganda, you create the the completely um, uh, 180 degrees opposite um, sentiment because people are, are tend to be more, more, uh, to get stronger on the, what they thought before and they don't want anything to change their minds because they're so, you know, full and, and overwhelmed what they feel. And especially now we are all overwhelmed. We cannot, you know, absorb anything more where, you know, everything is so full that you cannot uh, change it, whatever, you know, the majority of the people, what I think are looking for revenge. And this is what they do now with all the destruction. And also probably Palestinian people um, are looking for revenge as well. I mean, that uh, revenge is no, it's not a work plan. I mean, you cannot work with it. It's its like a very human sentiment, but you cannot rely on that and use it as as uh, as a tool.
0: So when, for instance, uh, Israeli soldiers plant an Israeli flag in Gaza's Palestine Square, which some people are saying, you know, this is an attempt to create the picture of victory or the Tumlat Nitzachon, which is always there in the background. Now, at what point will you say, yes, we have an image that shows that we we are winning or we're about to win? You know, that that's a message that's much more directed back at Israel rather than at the Palestinians who see that picture and is there such a thing as a, as a as an image that that can declare victory and what would what would that mean
1: i wonder if there is such a picture remember the the second world war which was really a defeat okay this was obvious that one side defeated the other side we don't have an image of this winning, you know we have many, many images you know of the of the people from the concentration camps that were released uh, the images of Dresden that was completely destroyed, and the very famous image I think it was in in Paris or maybe in New York of a soldier you know kissing a girl uh, on in the street, and people are celebrating and and uh you know joyfully um behind them and the or there is a photo, a very famous photo of a woman photographer called Lee Miller, who photographed herself inside the bathtub of, of Hitler in München. So it's there isn't one image. And talking about, you know, the, the Israeli flag in, in Palestine Square, first of all, I think the majority of the Israelis don't know the existence of, of the Palestine Square. Somebody who, haven't, who have never been to Gaza... You don't have this image, like you have the image of, I don't know, the twin towers in New York, you know, when the 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 jet plane hits the twin tower. So everybody knew what the twin tower stands for. Nobody knows what Palestine Square stands for, because nobody have been to Gaza and we we never we were never exposed to Gaza unless it was, you know. A demonstration on the on this fence with Israel, rocket shelling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't know what it means. I mean, they say, okay, this is the Palestine Square, and we put the, the flag. You know, it's like the Iwo Jima flag or whatever. You know, maybe they want to reflect that. Maybe it corresponds with that. Um, and. Maybe people feel, you know, sense of proud when they see this image and they see, okay, we got there, we destroyed it. Maybe people feel better, but at the same day that the flag was was put on Palestine or ruins of Palestine uh, Square, we were we got shot in Tel Aviv. So it isn't yet. You know a victory, and so I'm not sure there is a victory. In it. And and you know, to tell you the truth, wars everybody loses in in wars. You know, so I don't see any kind of victory. And that's, you know, if if there is a peace at the end of the road, then it's victory. Like after the seventy three war. You know, the victory was for me when when uh, Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, uh, landed in in uh, in Ben Gurion Airport and walked down the stairs. This was a victory. This was, you know, the, the end of the war. You really, you could really felt this overwhelming joy. Uh, but here, it's only, only sorrow and destruction and loss of lives and, and you know, it's in
0: it's, pain. We were discussing about, you know, what would a, a, an image of victory be, but I wanted to ask you exactly about the image that you and many other uh, people, uh, Israelis and Palestinians that were involved uh, in peace building uh, efforts. You know, the image that you had in your mind before October the 7th, you know, of what the future uh, could be. I just wanted to go back a few years. In 2017, you and Hiam Tanus wrote an op-ed for Haaretz uh, just before then-President Trump came to visit Israel. You were writing a few years after the last war between Israel and Gaza at the time, and this is part of what you wrote then. No more wars, no more victims, no more deaths, no more fear, no more horror. We promised ourselves, our sisters, our children, to do everything possible to prevent the next war, and that's, and that's why we founded Women Wage Peace. Our aim is to spur and support our leaders in forging a political solution to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to give women a voice, because sometimes it seems that the next war is just a matter of time now it's a bit uh, it's difficult to read uh, in some ways the expectation that that you have at that time and also you know this uh, impressive organization women wage peace that that you were building one of your co-founders clearly in establishing uh, women wage peace vivin silva was murdered by hamas in her home in Kibbutzbury on October the 7th. you know What else, as well as all of those human lives, what else do you see was destroyed on October the 7th? And do you think that that image, that picture of what the future you were hoping to build, do you think that that has dimmed or that there is still a way towards it?
1: First of all, it's very sad to To listen to these uh, words that we wrote um, what six years ago, Uh, and we failed. Um, What was I think hope is is was dimmed. I I do I still believe that uh, the only solution is is uh, a political solution and not uh, you know more wars. But uh, to tell you the truth, uh, and I'll be very, very open and very, it's very painful to say that I don't see any solution now. I don't see any feasible solution now. I don't see a way, unless, you know, we go to a very, very long term process to restart all this region. And build something from the ashes but right now people are so scared and so hurt and so painful and the loss is so so you know big for both sides and so i don't see any you know path now to to start speaking about um solution um I really am speechless. I must say I don't have the words even to 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 describe my my you know um confusion um and words I mean I have many, many ideas, but none of it is is very established yet, so allow me not to answer this, but uh, but say that uh, we should not give up hope that we can sometimes live. Uh, normally, this region, all the people of the region.
0: Anat, thank you so, so much. Thank you. And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz's weekly podcast. Thank you to my guest, Anat Saragusti, to producer and editor, Nahara Malkin, and thank you for listening.